This is Partnership for the Arts Radio. Come join us as we explore the worlds of art. Partnership for the Arts Radio is located at Virtual Edge 360 in Port Charlotte, Florida. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Partnership for the Arts. Thanks for joining us as we go on to the musician's stage today to talk with a wonderful, incredibly talented musician. In fact, you're listening to some of his music right now from his CD, Dominican Nights. George Mancini, how are you doing today? Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm feeling great. Nanette, how are you doing today? I'm great, Dave. How are you? Feeling blessed. George, if you don't mind, we'd like to go through and talk about your life, your career, music, what you've gotten out of it. As we all know, you have contributed so much to the music world and your students. So we're just going to talk about that today, if that's good with you. That is so open-ended. <laughs> That is so open-ended. I think for our listeners, Dave, we need to give them just a little tidbit about who George is. <laughs> well, I thought we were going to cover all that when we went back and recorded our introduction for the beginning of the show, but hey, no time like the present to let go for it. <laughs> George Mancini Sr., and the senior is very important, which Absolutely. we'll find out about shortly. Right is pianist extraordinaire. Dave and I have discovered him recently playing with a trio at Sheraton Four Points on Monday night. At 7 p.m., and usually with Ron on the drums and Isaac on the uh, stand-up bass. Correct. In Punta Gorda, Florida. That's just one very small pit stop on a career that has taken George around the world, doing so many exciting things. That's what we're going to hear a little bit about today. Wow, Nanette, that was so well done. <laughs> but now, George, it's your turn. Well, if you'd like a little background, I can give you the first moments. And believe it or not, I remember this instant when I was five years old. My ethnic uh, background is uh, Italian. Italians had a great propensity for music. And at the earliest stages, they would try to begin the child to study music. And I was taken to a music store, and I never went in the music store. I was standing outside, and my mother was alongside. She said, what instrument do you like? Now, I could not even name those instruments at five years old. But I saw this magnificent instrument with different colors and buttons, and, and it intrigued me. And I said, that's the instrument. And, of course, that was the accordion, and that was my beginning. What, and what size was this accordion compared to a five-year-old child? Okay. It was probably what they would call at that time a woman's full-size accordion. So it was much too large for a five-year-old, but somehow they ensconced me in this. <laughs> and I was able to get by in some very strange ways, and I had to learn some very strange technique. And the funny part of it is there, was a, there were no accordion teachers in the area. So in the beginning, I only violinist organists, and they didn't know very much about the accordion, but they knew a lot about music. And it was an interesting way to begin and a very different way to begin for an accordionist. So I have to ask, you got this 
big old accordion, and you're going and you're learning to play from an organist and a, and a, a violinist. How did you uh, simulate with those two into playing the accordion? I, I think the way it was is that I never was concerned with the mechanics. I was always concerned with the oral aspects of it, what they were playing for me, what they were singing for me, what they expected from me musically to come from me. Now it was my job to mechanically figure it out, but that was ancillary to the main process, which was to hear it and imitate mm -hmm. that sound and to translate the music into that sound. So it was a very, very different way to study it. It taught me certain things that I still have incorporated into my teaching today, different keyboard instrument, what have you. It's not the mechanics that are of consequence. It's something else. You have to put that before the student, and that's the oral aspects of it. The mechanics must have worked out pretty well also, because I read by the age of eight, you were on TV playing the accordion. Weekly? Some kind of weekly show? Yes, it was a weekly show. And they would say, okay, we're doing a show, and the theme is going to be, uh, I don't know, Argentina. And then I would play a tango. And, uh, <laughs> and the theme this week is Poland. I was the soloist. And so they'd just bring you out and you would be... Yeah, shocked. and I didn't have a clue. They would just stand wow. me someplace, I would just do some performance, and that was, that was... And then, of course, that was the beginning also of competitions and so on that I became involved in and had some success in it. Even at that time, you would go to a movie theater, because we're talking about in the late 40s. You would go to a movie theater and they would have a variety show mm -hmm. after the movie. George, you're talking about... A live variety show, people actually performing on the theater stage. Correct. And then they would have a contest. And it was all done on how much applause you got and uh, so on. And I'll never forget that one of my first contests, I didn't really quite understand. I got second prize in it. And the guy that received first prize had like, the first two rows. Oh. <laughs> it was rigged. <laughs> <laughs> Showed a great uh, amount of vigor on, on his part. Maybe there was a $15 prize or something. <laughs> hey, $15 in the 1940s with right. some money. Yes, you're right. This episode of Partnership for the Arts Radio Talk Show was recorded at the Visual Arts Center of Punta Gorda, Florida. So, well, and I know you still play because I saw a YouTube video that your wife put up um, from earlier this year. Correct. They still do perform on the accordion. It's a little bit more daunting now because it's a very physical kind of instrument, but it has something that you cannot quite get from any other keyboard instrument that I think is very close to what a guitarist feels. The instrument feels like it's part of you. And it's not an extension, which the piano is an extension, and many horns are an extension. But since there's this proximity to, to your body, you feel like it, it is part of you. And you're breathing with it because of the, the bellows on the instrument. So that's another aspect. I've had discussions with guitarists about it, and they feel much the same, especially classical guitarists, they feel much the same, the same way. So, George, you're a young child. You're playing the accordion from learning to play from a violinist and an organist. And then going on TV, that's <laughs> incredible. When did you discover jazz? When did that happen? I think the first person I really heard was uh, Dizzy Gillespie with Charlie Parker. Uh, jazz was not a big thing in the Italian community at that, at that time. Somehow I picked, picked this up and it really uh, piqued my interest. What piqued your interest about it? It was so different and 
extemporaneous, although I did not even know what extemporaneous meant at that uh, time. But I knew there was something unique about it, mm -hmm. very different about it. And of course, the rhythmic aspect of it, too, was appealing. I guess it has more to do with curiosity than anything yeah. else. And maybe education has more to do with curiosity than anything else. I, it appealed to me that my sister was playing piano, but the piano was a mainstay of jazz. So now I took it upon myself to uh, learn how to play piano also, but it was only in one style. It wasn't that I ever studied classical piano at that point. At that point, I just w was playing jazz uh, piano, which was a very, very different kind of thing. Now, in accordion, I played classical accordion and jazz accordion, and uh, it wasn't until much later that I studied classical uh, piano. So, George, let me ask, when you learned to play the piano, it was all self-taught, no instructor. Yes, exactly correct. Of course, I had the background of accordion, but uh, yeah, it was self-taught. That's absolutely and I would do very strange things with the piano. I would prepare the piano like you see many of the contemporary composers, not putting paper on the left side so you would get a sound of a bass. So you could accompany yourself with, with a bass, you could play a, a, a kind of a duet. Wait, can you explain to imitate a bassist? Put actually paper on the strings and it would give the appearance that you had a bassist playing along. I did not know that. Wow. I had no and then idea. I discovered things on the accordion. It's not possible on the electronic accordion, but on, on normal accordion, there was a song. I don't know if you are even familiar with it. Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White. And the trumpet player did a very unique thing. It started, ba 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 And he had this quite different sound. I wanted to play that song. And I thought about it, and I discovered that you can get half stops, much like a harmonica player can get notes, and you can change, you get it to change the sound by overplaying on it, and a very unique kind of uh, kind of thing. So, George, let's skip forward a bit to your time in New Jersey, because I think we'd all agree that was a game changer for you. And as a matter of fact, that's where I met my wife. Patricia, she was the secretary at one of the music schools I taught at, and I was more or less the piper of the music studio. <laughs> because I would go out playing my accordion in different schools and getting students that would want to do the same thing. So that was an interesting thing. And what about the competitions that you were involved in at, at the same time while you were doing all this other work? Now, out of some of the competitions, I won quite a few prizes, and one of them was a scholarship to a German university. And that was in 1960. And I was concerned about taking the scholarship because I was already married to Patricia. But being the special wife that she is, she said, take advantage. I did. Now, I'll never forget, I flew out of Idlewild Airport. That's before it was JFK. I flew on a plane, KLM, that still had propellers. <laughs> <laughs> I remember stopping in Prestwick, Scotland, before yes. I got to, to Germany. And where in Germany was the school? Actually, it was in the Black Forest near a city called Tübingen, south of Stuttgart, and so a very, okay. uh, a very prominent music city in Germany. And I was the only American student there. I just had a wonderful time uh, there, played in their concert band, learned a great deal. My German had taken some high school German, but it was not really up, uh, up to the level it should have been. And there were many mistakes that happened because of it. Like what, George? I can tell you one of the stories where language came in, where I took a class, and the class was called gymnasium. So I was all prepared. I went in shorts. <laughs> gymnasium wasn't a gym class. <laughs> so I was the only fool that was dressed Wait, well, so what was it? <laughs> it was an exercise for I mean, playing the piano. Uh, for playing the piano, yes. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, 
an exercise element to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you didn't exactly have to be prepared that way. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Well, I, I studied accordion there also. I studied accordion. And I studied the piano, and they had some extraordinary techniques that they were teaching, and it was all classic, no jazz. And then by the time I, I, I had finished there, after a period of time, they heard me playing jazz, and they offered me a position to teach jazz there. I said, no, I think I have to return to my wife in, in the United States, <laughs> which I did. And by that time, we had uh, two children, one born in January and one in December of the same year. So our family was growing rapidly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, George, let me ask, classical piano, how and when did you get into that? I think when I really got into my classical piano, is I was offered a performance, and I think it was for IBM. And they had a place where they would bring their executives and it was in Glen Cove, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they only wanted Chopin to play there. So as Patricia was uh, there at the time, she saw it. I was practicing 14 hours a day to get together a program because, frankly, I needed the money. I needed <laughs> the work. Right. <laughs> and right. that really moved me into the classic area in a very, very serious way. After that, uh, uh, I was still doing many, many gigs around New York and sometimes traveling, but not extensively. And then there was a company the Honer Company, that hired me as a clinician. And I would go out and do performances on the accordion and keyboards, what have you, whatever product they made. And I remember the first tour they sent me on, in 30 days, I think I visited 36 states. <laughs> so oh, wow. I, I'm in... <laughs> so wow. that was the beginning. And so Honer was a German corporation, and they had a business in the United States. And I was working for them as this clinician, consulted really, not formally. And they offered me a position, they were moving to Virginia. And I said, no, that's too far away. I said, I want to stay in the New York area. Well, not two weeks later, I had another position offered from Honor Europe, and I took it. <laughs> president, that's uh, not too far away no, from that's New York. <laughs> that was the point. The, the American president of the Honor Company said, hey, wait a second, you told me that this was too far away. <laughs> now it's all right to travel four or 5,000 miles uh, so we moved to Germany at that point. So, George, you, you moved to Germany. And when was that? I do believe that was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, because, oh, there was another child born. The fourth child, Miles, was, was born there. So it was 1980. And we took him along with us. Well, not initially. What happened initially is I was doing gigs, and I remember I had a gig in Paris. So in Paris, I'm doing this gig, and I had in my contract that if they rehired me after a two-week period, they had to send my family over. So I did this gig. They liked it. Two weeks go by. I said, okay, you know what the conditions are. I said, yep, no problem. So I call up uh, my wife, Patricia. I say, Pat, when can you be over here? Well, the next day she was <laughs> she was in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> then they asked me to live in Germany and use that as my base to go all over Europe. That I did for quite a few years and I became involved there in research and development. And we were the first company that really did digital drums. It just so happened at the same time I had bought a music studio, recording studio on Long Island called Boogie Hotel. And which was owned by Foghat. That's right. right. Initially, it was Fogat. That's right. That's yes. Right. But we would do many of Paul Simon. I mean, many big acts we, we brought in there. And the reason for it was we were about 60 miles away from the city. And they didn't want these guys to be involved with the culture 
in Manhattan because it detracted from the work. So they would send them out to us. So we would get the, many of the big name labels that would send people out to us. And we had bedrooms there. We had a full kitchen uh, there. There was no other place for them to go. They had to work. And they could work <laughs> anytime they wanted to, till early in the morning or what have you. So that's where we did the first analog recording that we were going to take and make into digital. So I took the analog recording. And the first one I, I, I did, I'll never forget, was a, a symbol. And the symbol did not decay until 10 seconds later. Well, memory at that time in the 80s was very expensive. And you could not put out a product that could use that kind of time. Our research center was in France. So I go back to France with my partner there, and he puts it on computer, and it was a room larger than this, sheets of paper going from the computer all the way to the other side of the room with all the spectroanalysis. So we're looking at it, uh-huh, uh-huh, and he doesn't understand it from the engineering standpoint. He's the first to see this. So he asks me, he said, well, what do you think about this? There's a little dot over here. I said, I don't know. So let's take it out. So you take, we took it out. It sounded terrible. Okay, put the dot back in. <laughs> we actually went through this process so we could find how to loop. And the interesting thing is you can take any sound, a trumpet sound, a violin sound, it doesn't matter. Use the first nanoseconds from the beginning. You can use anything after that. And it sounds like that instrument. Really? So all you have to be concerned about is what happens at the very, very beginning. It was an interesting experience for me as a musician. And I have perfect pitch. And they used to love to have me come in there and tell them, well, there's something wrong on this product at 500 hertz. So they liked that I could, I guess, get from one area to the other area. I had a, a, an interest in mathematics anyway. It wasn't very difficult for me to do that. Matter of fact, I ended up finally with a patent that I still have today. Actually, it's AI. It's an intelligence kind of uh, a chess program that, that deals with composing music. It automatically composes the music. Not very well, but it, it does it. <laughs> Some other companies have used it now at this point. So now I know where the inventor title comes right. into play. Right, exactly. Right. And George, with all this going on, uh, you were still teaching too, correct? Teaching students wherever I was. If I was in Germany, I was teaching. In France, if I was teaching. In Japan, I was uh, teaching. Wherever it happened to be, Hong Kong, wherever it happened to, uh, happened to be. George, let me ask you, when you had mentioned earlier that you were in, in Paris, you had gone back there, how long did you spend in, in Paris? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. Uh, I was in Paris often. <laughs> so I would, months, really, uh, that I would be there. Matter of fact, uh, I can tell you a cute story. Our research and development was based in, near Dijon, which is about two hours away from Paris. And we had occasion to have the Koreans, because we were doing some work for the Koreans, we weren't finished with the product. But we couldn't send any of our people because everyone is integrated into doing the work. But we had to somehow delay them coming in to hear the product. So we decided a good idea would be to send the Koreans into Paris. But we needed a guide. The guide turned out to be Patricia, my wife. <laughs> she couldn't speak French. <laughs> well, how about Korean? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I'm not sure how much she knew about the Paris <laughs> Patricia is in the studio yeah, with us. I, yeah, by the way, Patricia being very quiet over in the corner, but in, <laughs> enjoying the, the tales. But I just had this image when you say you called Patricia and said, how soon could you be in Paris? I get this image is before you hung up the phone, she was ringing the doorbell at the room. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
And she had a baby at the time, I think. This concludes part one of our interview. You can listen to part two on our website, partnershipforthearts.org.